Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the 2010 Stuart G. Christian Jr. Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I welcome you here this evening. Well, tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian Jr., known to all his many friends as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community as business executive and civic leader is well known. Twice wounded in Normandy, he returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. His service to this institution spanned some of the most critical years in our history. As trustee, board president, and honorary vice chairman, he gave us his leadership, his energy, his generosity, and his own special cantankerous, is that a good word for punk? His own cantankerous brand of persistence. All these qualities left an indelible mark on the VHS. He co-chaired our first capital campaign, the Fifth Century Fund, which redefined the VHS as the center for Virginia history and served as the catalyst for two decades of growth and achievement. We celebrate Punky with this lecture named in his honor, and we express our gratitude to his wife Peggy and their children for sharing Punky with his extended family here at the VHS. In fact, Peggy uh, and her daughter Susan and niece Edie are here tonight, down here. Thank you all so much. And though Punky left us last year, after a long life full of accomplishment, we will always remember him with the greatest affection for what he meant to so many Virginians. Punky's World War II service played a huge role in shaping and defining him, as it did for so many veterans of that momentous conflict. As we lose veterans like Punky, and my own grandfather, who died last year, I think it's incumbent on all of us who have lived in this post-war world to remember the sacrifices of that generation of warriors and to thank them for experiencing things that most of us will never know because they put themselves in harm's way. Just curious, how many World War II veterans do we have in the audience tonight? I think we all owe you a round of applause. Well, about the same time that Punky Christian was receiving wounds on the coast of France, halfway around the world, Ben Steele of the U.S. Army Air Corps was cramped with hundreds of other American POWs in the sweltering hold of a Japanese transport ship. They were being sent to serve as slave laborers on the Japanese home islands. Many of them, like Steele, were survivors of the most infamous episode of barbarity, to which U.S. troops were subjected during the war, the Bataan Death March. The outlines of the story are well known to many of us. After the fall of Bataan, in the wake of a three-month siege, some 76,000 American and Filipino troops were force-marched nearly 100 miles to a POW camp. This march would go down in infamy for the brutality of the conditions under which these men marched without water food, or medical attention. And yet, this was only the beginning of their suffering. Upon arrival at Camp O'Donnell, the POW camp that would house them, thousands began a slow dance of death, from malnutrition, dehydration, and the endemic diseases of a tropical climate and non-existent sanitation facilities. This they endured from April 1942 until the end of the war in August 1945, more than 1,000 days. The chronicle of suffering in the Bataan Death March and the hell of Japanese prisoner of war camps has been well documented before. Many of us have read books on the subject. I know I have. But nothing quite prepared me for the experience of picking up Tears in the Darkness by our speakers this evening, Elizabeth and Michael Norman. For as much as I know intellectually that wars are fought and suffered through by individuals, Never before had I experienced the human story in the powerful, intimate way that this talented writing team presents in this book. I mentioned Ben Steele a minute ago. He's the central figure in the book, a Montana cowboy who related his own remarkable story to the authors 
and whose vivid sketches illustrate the text. You see through his eyes the suffering and quiet heroism and the brutality that Steele witnessed firsthand. But Ben Steele was only the most prominent of more than 400 interviews that the authors conducted over the course of a decade with not only Americans like Steele, but also with their Filipino allies and remarkably with the Japanese soldiers who oversaw so much death and debasement in the Philippines. I was personally struck that, though far from excusing the actions of the Japanese Imperial Army, the Normans helped me, and I think their other readers, see inside and understand a little better the minds of the men who committed such unspeakable acts of cruelty. The story that Elizabeth and Michael Norman tell is one that all of us, as Americans, as citizens of the world, must know and must learn from. Elizabeth Beth Norman received her Bachelor of Science degree from Rutgers University and her graduate and doctoral degrees from New York University, where she joined the tenured faculty in 1998. She's currently a professor in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences, and she teaches history, writing, and research design. She's written two books, Women at War, the Story of 50 Military Nurses Who Served in Vietnam, and We Band of Angels, the Untold Story of American Women Trapped on Bataan by the Japanese. Her list of awards is numerous, but I'll mention an official commendation from the Department of the Army and the University of Virginia's Agnes Dillon Award. Beth's husband, Michael Norman, is a United States Marine Corps Vietnam War veteran. He served in that war from 1967 to 1969. After an honorable discharge in 1969, he enrolled at Rutgers, where he met Beth. After college, he became a reporter and worked for four decades for newspapers, including the New York Times, where he covered local, regional, and national news. In 1990, Michael published These Good Men, Friendships Forged from War. Like Beth, he is a tenured faculty member at NYU, where he teaches narrative journalism. The book they co-authored, Tears in the Darkness, The Story of the Bataan Death March and Its Aftermath, available at our museum shop, forms the basis for tonight's lecture and is a testament to Beth and Michael's dedication to telling a compelling story and obviously to the power of their relationship. Because I don't think any old marriage could weather a 10-year joint book project. (laughs) But the talk we're about to hear is a remarkable opportunity for all of us to remember and to learn. So please join me in welcoming Beth and Michael Norman. Good evening. Michael and I would like to thank the members of the Virginia Historical Society, um, Society President Paul uh, Levengood, and Dr. Nelson Langford for inviting us here tonight and giving us the opportunity to speak um, with you. And um, Nelson, happy birthday. Uh, Before we get into the details about Tears in the Darkness and the amazing stories of men from that era, Filipinos, Americans, and Japanese, we want to tell you why we decided to write about the Bataan Death March. I'd touched on that subject before. In 1999, um, I published a book, We Band of Angels, about the American nurses who served in the field hospitals of Bataan and uh, were later captured by the Japanese on the island of Corregidor. Michael helped me edit that book and felt that the larger story of the Battle of Bataan, the death march, and everything that followed would make a good second volume. I agreed, and despite the history of writing couples, especially those that end up in divorce court, and there are many of them, we decided to work together. As you can guess, Michael and I have been married a very long time, and I thought, well, if we're going to uh, make this writing partnership work, let's uh, work with what helped the marriage work, and a lot of long-term uh, couples will understand this, that Michael learned to say two words during the book that worked very well. Yes, dear. <laughs> now you know who the boss is. You knew all along, I'm sure. Uh, As a combat Marine from Vietnam, I had my own special reason for working on this book. The story of the Bataan Death March was the worst war story I'd ever heard, and I'd been writing about war for about 35 years. It was a story of pointless slaughter 
and deprivation that seemed to embody the feelings that I had brought home from the battlefield from 28 combat operations and 13 months of fighting. The one thing that I'd learned about war, the one inarguable truth, was that as soon as the first shot is fired, everyone loses. But in 30 years of writing about war, I'd never been able to successfully convey that theme. Now here, thanks to Beth's first book, was a story that seemed to say what I felt hadn't been said effectively since the publication in 1928 of All Quiet on the Western Front, the remarkable novel by Eric Marie Remarque. I thought that if we could somehow manage to turn history into narrative, told from the men's point of view, we might just have something that readers would embrace, but most particularly that readers would be able to feel. So we set to work in 1999. The first job was to gather the history, and that's how we should begin tonight. We'll set the historical context for you, and then we'll give you a dramatic reading of portions of the text, along with some rare photos and sketches, a combination we hope will allow you to experience the march and its aftermath. Then we're happy to answer your questions. So let's begin with a bit of history. Familiar to many of you, uh, but on approx at approximately 7.55 a.m. on December 7, 1941, Hawaii time, Japanese bombers and fighters appeared over the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor and within an hour destroyed most of the American Pacific fleet lying at anchor there, killing more than 3,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Most of us, of course, have heard of that moment, but the attack on Pearl Harbor was only one of a series of attacks that day, the beginning of World War II for America. In the next eight hours, the Japanese also struck other targets in the Pacific, among them America's most important possession in the area, the Philippine Islands. There they bombed Clark Field and destroyed the American Air Corps. Two weeks later, on the morning of December 22nd, the Imperial Japanese 14th Army invaded the islands. The Japanese landed 43,000 men. The Americans and Filipinos met them with 160,000 men. The problem was, with the American Air Corps destroyed, the inexperienced, ill-trained, and badly equipped American and Filipino troops had no airplanes to protect them and no navy to resupply them. It didn't take the Japanese very long to push the Filipinos and Americans back and back again to the final defensive position on the peninsula of Bataan. There, for 99 days, the defenders were under siege. Finally, sick and starving and outgunned, the Bataan force, 76,000 men, surrendered. It was the first major land battle for America in World War II and it was the worst defeat in American military history. After the battle, the Japanese wanted to get their prisoners off Bataan quickly so they could use the peninsula to stage for the invasion of tiny Corregidor, the island fortress that guarded the mouth of Manila Bay. So the Japanese lined their 76,000 captives up in columns and started them marching north under a blistering tropical sun. They didn't give them enough food, they didn't give them enough water, and since the men were sick and starving from months of fighting and eating half rations, they started to drop. At first, the Japanese tried to beat the dropouts to their feet. Then, to keep the columns moving, they just killed them, bludgeoned them, bayoneted them, decapitated them, shot them, ran them down like dogs. The Bataan Death March. The Death March, however, was only the beginning of this story of war and atrocity. In the three years that followed, the marchers were penned up in one stinking and diseased hellhole after another. Some 60,000 Filipino soldiers were imprisoned for roughly eight months, then released as civilians. More than a third of them, 26,000 men, died in captivity. The Americans were held for three years. Many were shipped to Japan to work as slave laborers in mines and factories and shipyards. Finally, in August 1945, the Americans were liberated. 25,000 Americans had gone into captivity in the Philippines. Three years later, only 15,000 came home. 
If you do the math quickly, that's a survival rate of, um, let's say, excuse me, that's a, a death rate of about 40%. By comparison, Allied prisoners of war in Europe suffered a death rate of only 3%. It took a long time for us to find a way to tell this story, tell it so the reader could see war, feel war, experience war on the page. We did not want to write history from on high. We wanted to tell it from ground level, from the point of view of the men who were there, who, were fought, who fought and were captured. We've not counted them up, but we're guessing there are probably a hundred voices in Tears in the Darkness. To keep the story from going off in a hundred different directions, we come back every now and then in the book to one particular voice, one man we keep track of from the first page to the last, a young Montana cowboy named Ben Steele. Ben went through everything, the battle, the death march, the prison camps, the hell ships to Japan, then slave labor in a Japanese coal mine. Along the way, he taught himself to draw, and after the war, he became a professor of art. Twenty-two of his remarkable sketches of those dark days as a POW are set right into the text. It also took a long time to dig out the story of the Japanese. We spent three weeks in Japan talking to 23 Imperial Army, former Imperial Army soldiers, and a quarter of the book is told from their point of view. We think that that perspective makes our work unique. Today we're going to give you a small sample of those three narrative or storytelling points of view. We're going to begin with the heart of the book, the Death March, and with you experiencing the march through Ben Steele's point of view, through Ben Steele's eyes. So we want you to sit back for a moment, and we want you to imagine that you're on Bataan. It's April 9th or 10th, 1942. You've just been told that your commanding general has surrendered to the Japanese, and the rumors are the Japanese don't take prisoners. You don't really believe that because you don't want to believe that, but you're afraid nonetheless. You're sitting somewhere, maybe in the middle of the jungle, maybe by the side of the road, just waiting for the enemy to come along and take you into custody or kill you. You've ex you're exhausted because for days the enemy has been chasing you and you've been running away from them and you've been running for your life. Your nerves are shot. The enemy has been bombing and shelling you for months and fear is now a permanent part of you. You're hungry. Oh, are you hungry? More hungry than you ever could have imagined. For months during the battle, you've been living on nothing but rice mush and tuna flakes and strips of monkey meat. You're malnourished, and the lack of vitamins has made your muscles weak, your mind muddled, made your courage falter. It's hot, hotter than you have ever known, 110 degrees, 120 degrees. You're on a road now, marching north off Bataan, walking in one long column of men after another, four abreast. You don't know where you're going. It's hard, this walking. Hard on everything, especially your feet. This is from the book. Ben Steele was watching for socks. Men were starting to blister, big blisters, size of a half dollar, blisters in clusters, breaking and bleeding with every step. Some men used sharp rocks to make slits in their shoes and boots, makeshift sandals, but their feet were so swollen uh, that the skin just bulged painfully through the openings. Others removed their footwear and walked barefoot, wincing with every step. He had to find socks or he too would soon be hobbled. Ben Steele pawed through the packs and bags abandoned along the road. Finally, somewhere north of Cab Cabin, he saw just what he'd been looking for. A corpse lay on the shoulder of the road. The dead man was wearing garrison shoes, low quarters instead of work boots, and the laces were loose and untied. Ben Steele removed one of the shoes, stripped off the sock, and was reaching for the other foot when out of the corner of his eye he spotted a guard headed his way and dashed back to his place in the column. What the hell were you doing back there with that dead guy, said a fellow marcher. You gotta take care of your feet, Ben Steele said, or you're not going to get very far. Most of all, you're thirsty. Thirsty from the glaring sun and the oven-like heat and the thick dust from the road that hangs like a cloud around you, filling your mouth, your eyes, your nose. Water. You have got to get some water. 
but the damned guards won't let you stop as the columns pass by small rivers and springs and pipes from artesian wells. They're shooting the men who stop. They're stabbing the men who stop. This is from the book. Ben Steele was drying up. His tongue was swollen, and he felt himself gagging on it. He looked at the sun. Not a prairie sun, he thought. This one was hotter, less forgiving. No trees, no buildings, no shade. He stripped off his T-shirt and draped it over his head. Somewhere north of Cab Cabin, he got his first sun treatment in an assembly area. Must have been more than 2,000 men sitting in that damn field. What the hell were the Japs doing there? Didn't make any sense. Mean bunch of bastards. Back on the road, he was choking again. Man next to him had some water. Hey, give me a drink, will you? Ben Steele asked. The man kept walking. Come on, buddy, I'm in bad shape. What do you say? Here, the man said, relenting. Don't take it all, you understand? Farther on, walking in the front rank at the head of a column, Ben Steele caught a glimpse of something at the side of the road. A half-gallon tin can and it was half filled with water, an offering from one of the locals, he guessed. Now he was the one with the drink, and other men began to pull at his sleeve, imploring him, water, come on, water. When the can was empty, he would dip it in a rice paddy, a wallow, a drainage ditch. He didn't share with everyone, just those he couldn't ignore. Give me some water, dear God, please. Here, he'd say, don't take all of it. You need help, but you know you're not going to get it. So you think of home, and maybe you start to pray. Then you see other men praying, and you watch those same men drop to the road where the buzzard squads, the units who cleaned up the dropouts, came upon them to do their dirty work. Where is God now, you think? From the book. Ben Steele believed in God, but he did not think of himself as a religious man. Back home, he rarely spent Sundays in a pew and never wandered out to the prairie to listen to the tub-thumping evangelists call the Holy Spirit into their tent. The Holy Spirit, he noticed, was nowhere in evidence on the old national road. How many of the men begging for a drink had gone to their deaths with the words, please, God, still on their lips? He wasn't angry at the Lord. He was just being realistic. Faith wasn't going to feed him or slack his thirst. He had to focus on the next wallow or well or that guard, the one up ahead there, raising his rifle and aiming at a Filipino who had broken ranks and was running to a stand of sugar cane. The bullet caught the poor kid in the back and sent him sprawling, and the guard over him now was pulling the trigger again. Steele thought, okay, this may happen to me, But all these other guys are alive, and I'm not any worse off than they are. So I'm going to hang in there as long as I can. If there's going to be anybody left alive from this, I'm going to be one of them. You have to be smart to stay alive. You learned that growing up. You were raised in hard country, the West with its alkali creeks and high desert. You live by your wits and your grit out there in those hard scrabble Montana hills and on that vast prairie. So live by your wits now, here, on the march to who knows where. From the book. Ben Steele had a cowboy's constitution and a camp tender's legs. All those Montana mornings running miles after some horse he thought he'd hobbled the night before. And now, as he pushed himself forward, he reminded himself of all those years of hard work on rough ground and found it easier to keep on his feet. As a rule, he stayed at the front of the column, often in the first rank, a good vantage point to spot trouble or look for food and water. Watching the guards on his flank, he noticed they were leaving a lot of space between them, and it occurred to him that at those distances, A guard would have to be a hell of a shot to hit a man. So from time to time, he broke from the line of march to run for water or stalks of sugar cane. He thought of trying to escape, too. But where would he go? Into the malarial hills? The jungle? Wander around until some Jap patrol bagged him? Early afternoons were the worst. The blistering sun and heat left him heavy-legged. Concentrate, he told himself. Left, right left, right. 
when the guards stopped the column for a rest, he'd fallen to an instant sleep like many of the others, only to be stomped awake by the heel of a hobnail boot. Pay attention, you tell yourself. You have to pay attention. You have to know where the guards are every minute. Stay in the moment. Shake off the stupor of heat and exhaustion. If you slip up, if you lose your concentration for just a moment, you're going to end up like one of those bodies littering the side of the road. So many of them in the drainage ditches, on the dirt shoulders. So many of them. From the book. Ben Steele would not allow himself to drift. This was no nightmare with bugbears chasing him up the road. The beating, shooting, stabbings were real, and he knew he wasn't going to wake from them. Here was a blonde-haired boy, half collapsed on the shoulder, desperately trying to push himself to his knees, and here came a Jap to finish him. The boy groaned, that's all, just groaned as the bastard stuck him in the back. Turn away, Ben Steele thought, turn away from the horror and hurt of it just another corpse by the side of the road. No room for loathing or hate. A Jap spits in your face, so what? To hell with the bastard. Just keep walking, he told himself. Make the best of it. Men were still clawing at him for water, but by the time he had reached Belanga, walked some 30 miles, he'd become selfish with his can. Sure, he could sympathize with the guy and want to help him, but he'd been carrying the water all day, careful not to spill a drop of it, and the can held only enough for, to last a couple of hours. It's survival of the fittest, he thought. You gotta look after yourself. How many miles have you walked? You don't know. You can't tell. One foot in front of the other. That's all you should be thinking about. But your mind wants more, wants some relief from what you're seeing, what you're being made to suffer, the heat, the thirst, the hunger, what you're also being made to see with every step, bodies of dropouts with bashed heads, bayonet and bullet wounds, bloated bodies rotting in the sun, waiting for the crows and night lizards. Your mind wants some relief. From the book. So many were dropping to the road. Ben Steele thought it was better to stay aloof, not get close to anyone, but north of Layak Junction, about 50 miles into the march, he lost his resolve and befriended a marchmate. They talked a bit while walking, talked about where they'd been, where they might be headed, and what might happen to them when they got there. Talking made the walking easier, the heat a little less intense. That night, sitting together in a compound, they chatted some more, and Ben Steele felt better for the company. Next afternoon on the road, he noticed his new friend beginning to wobble. A mile or two later, the man's legs gave out, and down he went, grabbing for Ben Steele's leg as he hit the ground. Come on, Ben, help me. He and another man hauled the dropout to his feet and started to drag him along between them down the road. They hadn't gone far before a guard rushed up and screamed at them to let the invalid go. His helper obeyed. But for reasons beyond all understanding, Ben Steele hung on to the man. And the next thing he knew, his buttocks were on fire. The guard's blade had penetrated through to Ben's pelvis. Blood was beginning to course down his leg, and flies were starting to swarm the wound. He looked at the man he was holding, hoped he'd understand, then let him sink slowly to the road at the guard's feet. No, the man said, no, please. Help me, please. One of the things that we think makes Tears in the Darkness different is that we shift the story from among three different points of view, American, Filipino, and Japanese. We thought a really unique perspective might come from the Filipino civilians who were living on Bataan at the time. We did a lot of interviewing on the peninsula and found some amazing stories, and tonight we're going to tell you one of them. From the book. Within a day of surrender, word spread out across Luzon that the Japanese were marching Filipino and American prisoners of war up the old national road out of Bataan and through Pampanga province to the railhead at San Fernando. Now from provinces near and far, Filipino kith and kin began to make their way to Bataan and take up positions along the road, hoping for a glimpse or perhaps a word with their soldier. There were thousands of them marching. 
uh, and thousands of them waiting, townsfolk from dusty burgs and barrios along the old national road, waiting to do whatever they could for the man, men slogging their way north. They filled tins and earthen pots with water. They made rice balls stuffed with meat and vegetables and wrapped them in banana leaves. They boiled eggs and pickled fruit. They set the water beside the road and at first tried to hand the victuals to the soldiers as they passed by. Soon the guards had had enough of this and started to beat the people off with clubs and rifle butts. So the people started to toss their treats into the columns. From the side of the road, children would dash into the columns, shove something into a soldier's hand, a banana leaf full of rice, a small melon, a sugar cookie, and dash off before the guards could kick or club them. After a while, some of the guards relented. As long as the columns kept moving, the men let, they let the men shag whatever they could. Uh, this is also from the book. In the neighborhood of Batak, in the town of Abukai, Amandu Pabustan, nine years old, stood next to his mother, Rosalana Maksali, behind a long iron fence that, fence that fronted the Batak Elementary School, a white, one-story building next to the road. They'd gotten there early, an hour before dawn, to wait in the cool and dark. Now, with the light, came the columns of men. The boy was hoping that his father, Damien Pabustan, a soldier in the Philippine army had survived the fighting was among the long lines of soldiers passing in front of him. His mother told him to watch carefully. There were so many men, all wearing the same thing, all dirty and tired. They would have to study each face, she told him. They would have to note each man's way of walking. They would have to hope, and they would have to pray. They kept coming, the men, one group of sondalos after another. They were so payat so thin and haggard, hanging on to one another as they walked, the guards punching them, kicking them, beating them. Whenever Armando looked over at his mother, she was crying, and the boy became convinced that his father was dead. But he continued to search among the faces coming up the road, and then, ai, there was his father in the middle of a column of soldiers. He crossed the yard, rushed through the gate, and threw himself into his father's embrace. His tate felt thin. He must be sick, the boy thought. Where is your mother, Armando, his father said. The boy pointed to the fence. You must get away from here now, his father said. Go back to your mother. But he did not want to go. He was holding his father around the waist, hugging him very tight. Have you eaten anything, father? I haven't had any food or water for three days. His father glanced at the fence again. Go over to your mother, he said. But the boy wouldn't move. A guard who'd been watching came over to break them apart, and Armando buried his face in his father's midriff. Suddenly, he felt a pain in his back, the toe of a hobnail boot. And here came a second guard now, grabbing at him, catching the scruff of his shirt, pulling him from his father, and tossing him to the road. Cora! Cora! the guard shouted, shoving his father back into line. Take good care of your mother, his father said. Then the column of men moved on, past the fence, past the school, down the road of Abukai, and out of sight. Now we're going to offer you the Japanese perspective. The death march was not an organized march per se. American and Filipino units were scattered all over the peninsula, and as they surrendered, they were told to make their way to the East Coast Road, where guards waited to herd them into columns and start marching them north. One of those groups of prisoners were from the Philippine Army 91st Division. Among them, we believe, were many American uh, advisors. This group of about 400 captives were walking along a jungle trail and crossing the Pantangan River when the Japanese took them into custody. The 91st had seen a lot of action, and the Japanese believed them to be one of the units that had wiped out, annihilated, really, a Japanese regiment early in the battle for Bataan. Someone in a position of command, and no one knows for sure, decided that the Imperial Army should take its revenge for that annihilation um, and the group of 400 prisoners from the 91st was led across the river up a hill to a waiting area by the edge of a ravine. There, Filipino and their American advisors had their hands tied behind their backs with uh, communications wire and then were wired together in chains, 15 men to a chain. Each chain of men was marched to the edge of the ravine and told to face forward. 
Then a line of Japanese soldiers and officers with bayonets fixed and swords drawn stepped behind them and started to stab them. When their bloody work was done, they kicked the chain of men over the edge and into the ravine. This became known as the Massacre of the Pantangan River, perhaps the worst story of the death march. We found three Japanese soldiers who took part in that massacre, three men who talked to us about the murders they committed, and here is the story of one of them. This is from the book. Private Usamu Murakami, his thought, his father, a fisherman, farmer, and logger, a most unusual man, at least for the times. Other parents, seeing their sons off to war, told them, don't go back, don't come back alive, or go and die for your country. But his father hated the war, and he blamed the military for putting the country on a path to defeat and ruin. And the day Usamu, his oldest son, reported to the 5th Light Machine Gun Company, 122nd Infantry for Embarkation Overseas, his father had tears in his eyes. Don't volunteer for anything, his father said, sobbing. Usamu had never seen his father cry. Just come back, his father said. Usamu Murakami thought of himself as a good soldier who hated the army and the war, and on April 9th, when the guns fell silent, he was elated. But surveying the corpses scattered around him, Takihai, enemy soldiers, as well as Hohei, his own comrades, his moment of exultation flew away like a startled bird. And all that was left was simple relief. How, he wondered, how did I manage to survive? Maybe it was his destiny or just luck, He couldn't say. Then looking around again, another thought occurred to him. Why, he asked himself, why did we have to have this war? He was thirsty, and he wandered down to the Pantangan River to get a drink. Upstream, he saw Filipino soldiers getting water. Obviously, they had yet to surrender. He watched them for a moment and decided to leave them alone. I'm thirsty. They're thirsty, too, he told himself. I'm not going to report that I saw them. The regiment bivouacked along the Pantangan and awaited new orders. One day passed, then another. They cleaned their gear and bathed in the river and cooked rice for their midday meal. On the third day, Osama Murakami and four other men got the word that the company commander wanted to see them. The officer explained that each company had been ordered to send five men to a spot above the river for special duty, men who had excelled in bayonet training. A lieutenant came to fetch the group, led them up the hill and into the jungle to a section of trail above the ravine. Assembled there were many Horyo, prisoners of war, hundreds in fact, Filipinos mostly, but also a handful of Americans too. Some of the prisoners were blindfolded and tied with rope, some were tied with wire. Usama Murakami sensed that something ominous was about to take place and he did not like it. Several of the other men, his comrades, were uneasy as well. What are we going to do, one of them asked. Shoban, an officer said. You're going to kill them. Then the officer called Murakami's name, told him to step forward. But Usamu hesitated. Look, said his company sergeant, look, just kill one man and you can go back to your unit. Usamu just stood there. The sergeant tried again. Look, look, there are lots of officers here from other units, he said softly. The men are killing the prisoners, and our company commander wants to show them that our men can do this too. So you should do this as quickly as possible. Just kill one and you can go back. Then the company sergeant said, or you will be killed by the company commander. The officer was growing impatient and he barked at the sergeant. Why don't you tell your men to do it quickly? This is the order of the emperor. Some Murakami thought, I have no choice. In training, he had stuffed large dolls, stuffed with, stabbed large dolls stuffed with straw. But this... This was different. He stepped forward with his rifle at the ready. The man in front of him was a Filipino, face pale, eyes filled with fear. Usama Murakami tightened his grip on the rifle, flexed his knees, thrust his weapon forward. Yeah, he yelled, at the point where he imagined the man's heart was. He heard a kind of click or snap, like a stick breaking. He guessed he'd hit a rib. So he twisted the blade hard, finished the stroke, yanked the bayonet free. The Filipino sank to his knees, blood pouring from the wound. Owata! Usamu shouted, almost defiantly. I'm finished! Kere! The major yelled back at him. Kick him down. 
Murakami put his heel on the figure twitching in the dirt and shoved it over the side into the ravine. Follow him, the officer told the next Japanese soldier, and so it went, man after man, down the line. With each thrust there was a scream, then an echo in the hills, and when the ravine began to fill with bodies, it too issued a complaint, a chorus of moaning and crying. Why do I have to do things like this? Sama Murakami thought. He toweled the blood from his clothes, wiped his weapon, and tossed the towel into the ravine. You can go, the officer said. He ran. He ran as fast as he could, and when he looked back over his shoulder, he saw many others running as well, as if someone or something were chasing them from the killing ground. Back at the bivouac, he chanted a prayer for the man he had killed, for all the murdered men, moaning and crying in the valley, but the prayer didn't work. That night, the dead came to him in a dream, one after another. Don't come only to me, he told them, but if you want, please appear in front of the emperor and ask the emperor how he would feel if he had been ordered to stab you. In the three years that followed, Ben Steele spent time in one stinking camp or enclosure after another. He helped dig mass graves for his dead comrades. He went on a work detail with 300 other men, carving a road in the jungle with nothing but picks and shovels and wheelbarrows. A hundred of them died. He suffered from beriberi, malaria, blood poisoning, jaundice. At one point, he was so close to death a Catholic priest gave him the last rites three times. During his imprisonment, he taught himself to draw and secretly began to sketch scenes of the atrocities he had witnessed. In 1944, he found himself in the foul, suffocating hole of a freighter, a hell ship, as the POWs came to call those infamous vessels on their way to uh, send the men to labor in the coal mines and docks of the enemy's homeland. It was clear that Japan was losing the war. Ben wound up in a coal mine called the Minamachi. It was also clear to the POWs their captors might execute them before they could be liberated. This is from the book. After breakfast on August 13, 1945, the Japanese commandant uh, of the camp and the British major, was, who was the senior officer in charge, called an assembly of prisoners in the mess hall. The commandant announced that there would be no work that day, which was unusual, since the day before had been the prisoners' regular day off. Some of the men were uneasy. They were ready to act. Then, in a steady voice, the commandant said that Japan had surrendered to the Allies, and he, in turn, was surrendering the camp to the British major. The war was over, just like that, after breakfast. A few men clapped politely. A few others began to cry. Thank you, God, they said. Thank you. Ben Steele shut his eyes. He thought, I haven't seen my family since October 1940, almost five years. I wonder if they're all still alive. They put him on a hospital ship, clean white sheets, mounds of food. Then a few weeks later, he was flown to San Francisco to Letterman Army Hospital. He had been a prisoner of war for 1,244 days. Every day, he had thought about home. Now, all he wanted was a telephone. This is from the book. Ben Steele had trouble connecting with his parents. Finally, a telephone operator came on the line and told him there was no such exchange. He asked for information. They didn't have a listing for Ben or Elizabeth Steele anywhere in Billings. But he said, all right, connect me to the police department. Maybe they could locate the folks. The cops commiserated with him but couldn't help. Never mind, he'd call his Uncle Jimmy, his father's brother. If Jimmy was home, he'd know where the folks were. The operator put the call through. The phone rang. A girl, a young girl from the sound of her, came online. Hello? She said brightly. Hello, he answered back. Who's this? The girl said. This is Bud. That was his nickname. A long silence. Then the sound of the telephone handset hitting the floor. God damn, he thought she might have fainted. Hey, hey, he yelled into the phone. 
Then in the background, he heard shouting, It's Bud, everybody, it's Bud. Chairs rattled on the wooden floor, and from the footfalls and all the shouting, it sounded like people were running around in circles. It's Bud, he heard someone yell again. Good Lord, it's Bud. The girl came back on the phone. She was very excited. Hey, Bud, this is Polly, Uncle Jimmy's daughter, she said. They hadn't heard about him for so long, they thought he might be dead. Where are you at, Bud? I'm in San Francisco. He's in San Francisco, she yelled to the others. Where's the folks, he asked. Oh, they're living up in Broadview, Bud, she said. The old man was managing the Spidell Ranch up there. Well, he said, give me their address and I'll write them. Oh, no, Bud. Dad says we're going to get in the car, go on up there, and tell him you're home. When he finally connected with his family, his mother was beside herself. Between sobs, she told him how much she'd missed him, how worried she'd been, how little word they'd had. He told her about the good care he was getting, all the food he was eating, and how he couldn't wait to get home to Montana. We got lots of food here, bud, she said. We'll have a real celebration. It'll be a great Thanksgiving. The Army put him in a convalescent hospital in Spokane. When Thanksgiving leave came, he got on an eastbound train. All he could think about was seeing his family, how they'd look, especially his mother. He was close to his mother, 1,244 days. The whole family was there, 50 of them, everyone hugging him, kissing him, patting him on the back, all watery-eyed and blowing their noses. He looked around, taking it all in. The city seemed untouched by the war, same small-town feel anyway. On Thanksgiving, they went to Aunt Joe's in Muscle Shell for dinner, a real crowd, even neighbors from the old days at Hawk Creek. It was the kind of meal he'd been dreaming about for years, Turkey, dressing, mashed and sweet potatoes, green beans, gravy, cake and pie. He stuffed himself, and everyone got a kick out of watching him. This is also from the book. It's a cool November morning, and he is up early with the folks at the ranch in Broadview. The old man, as he called his father, is managing. His furlough's been a good one, about a week left, and this morning he's looking forward to helping the old man with some chores. Stock needs tending, and after breakfast, he strolls out to the barn to get a horse. He takes the bay in the second stall, slips on a bridle, then a blanket and saddle. He works slowly, enjoying the creak and smell of the leather, the barn dust, the protests of the bay against unfamiliar hands. When he's done, he leads the animal into the yard, puts his foot into the left stirrup, and finds his seat. First time a horse in years, and he sits there for a minute, taking in the ranch, the corrals, the chickens in the yard. He's been staring at the same scene for days, wandering out of the house every so often, and lifting his nose to the wind to catch the scent of the sage, studying the magpies and sparrows wintering in the hills, listening to the sound of the wind. He couldn't get enough of it. The rolling brown prairie, the cottonwoods, the winter grass, the feeling of being free. In the years that followed, Ben Steele married, had children, divorced, remarried, earned two degrees, and became a professor of art at Montana State University in Billings. This is a final excerpt from the book. He was a natural teacher, popular with his students. Then on the first day of his second semester, he walked into his classroom and saw a ghost, a Japanese. The student's name was Harry Koyama, the son of beet farmers from out Hardin Way, the first Japanese Ben Steele had encountered since the war. He looked at those dark, almond-shaped eyes, and his heart hardened and filled with hate. And when he found out that the boy's family had been locked up in an internment camp during the war, he assumed the boy hated him as well. This is awful, Ben Steele thought. What am I going to do? After class, he went back to his small office to think. He told himself, okay, the war is over. He wasn't a prisoner anymore, and this wasn't Japan. It was America, and this kid's an American too. That being the case, he decided, I have to treat him like everybody else, no different. 
For a while, it worked. He seemed okay with Harry, and Harry seemed okay with him. Then the student discovered that his professor had been a prisoner of the Japanese, and Ben Steele could feel the boy pulling away, withdrawing. That troubled the teacher in him, and he sat the student down for a talk. By the end of the semester, Harry Koyama was uh, among the best students in the class, and Ben Steele was beginning to wonder what happened to all the hate he had brought home. Today, Ben Steele and Harry Koyama, a successful artist in Billings, Montana, are close friends. In fact, we were with both of them uh, last summer. And finally tonight, we'd like you to know that on uh, last November 17th, Ben Steele, former prisoner of war, turned 92 years old. He still goes out to his art studio every day to work, and I know you'll join us in wishing him well. Michael and I would like to thank you very much for this opportunity tonight, and we're happy to answer your questions. Anyone has any questions? We'll get a microphone to you. And what about some of the long-term effects? This post-traumatic syndrome and all that sort of stuff that these survivors in all of the three camps experienced. You know, obviously, most of, I mean, the whole diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder really didn't appear till the 1980s, but every man we spoke to um, clearly had um, emotional and, and psychic scars from what they went through. And um, it was an extraordinary man like Ben who was able to work through them and get rid of his hate, but many, many of the American prisoners of war spent their lives and still spend their lives um, still festering with the hate that they brought home with them. And that's a difficult thing to live your life um, with. Also, their physical ailments never left them. Um, they had higher rates of heart disease, cancer, intestinal disorders. And as Ben often says, he's shocked that any of them live past the age of 50. And um, we were with about a dozen of these men two weeks ago, well into their 90s. So there were some who came through. But they paid a very heavy physical and emotional price for what happened to them during the war. There's a, a kind of a sweet irony for Vietnam veterans to, to the second part of the answer to the, this question. For years, uh, the prisoners of the Japanese and the European prisoners of war were really badly compensated by the Veterans Administration. Was, I mean, this happens after every war. Uh, you know, men come home and, and uh, they're not properly cared for or compensated and they have to fight for their rights. So it, when, starting in about 1980, 1981, the Veterans Administration commissioned a study on Vietnam veterans, which is where the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, emerged from this 1981-80 study. And some of the Bataan veterans got latched onto this study and convinced some doctors in the VA to take a look at them in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was only then that every prisoner of war was classified 100% disabled and got full veterans, uh, veterans benefits. And about two, two and a half years later, um, every prisoner of war was also awarded the Bronze Star for survival. I have a question from a family member who's now deceased. Uh, how many of these slanty-eyed bastards were that ran these camps were ever prosecuted? Um, there were 900 executions of Japanese um, leaders and soldiers. Um, the uh, commandant, uh, 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 several of the commandants of the hell ships were executed. The commandant of Camp O'Donnell was executed. Um, so 900 men were uh, shot. Yeah, there were about uh, 2,500, I think, uh, trials that uh, took place in the Far East. You had two war crimes tribunals, one in Germany uh, and one in Tokyo, plus you had a, a large number, hundreds, of military commissions in the various territories that the Japanese had occupied that were run by the, the, former, uh, you know, the, the uh, former folks, who, uh, the Chinese 
and the Filipinos. Um, and those commissions also had the power to uh, sentence prisoners to death or imp in, uh, incarcerate them for years. One of the teenage guards, for example, in the coal mine that Ben Steele was in, uh, who had slapped around some of the prisoners, he spent six years in uh, Sagamu prison. So um, there was a, a measure of justice after the war. Yeah. I have known two survivors, General Harold K. Johnson and my good friend Jack Wright. <clears throat> my question is, what role, if you, if, maybe this isn't a fair question, but you know more than I do, what role did the Code of Bushido play in the horrible treatment or was it just like with Ernst Rome's brown shirts that they recruited the scum of Germany to do their dirty work? I'd just like to have your opinion. I'll answer the second part of your question first. No, they did not uh, uh, recruit the scum of Japan. There were uh, you know, some 2.8 million men in uniform. Most of them were farm boys or factory workers, um, uh, relatively uneducated. Um, and uh, the Code of Bushido actually was the invention of retired samurai from the 17th century who no longer had a job and became sort of these public intellectuals. And they looked back on the samurai wars um, and they, 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 they wrote about them, but they wrote about them as if they were noble things, men of honor, when in fact the Japanese samurai were actually mercenaries who would turn their backs in a minute on their feudal lords if they weren't being paid enough and go fight for another feudal lord. So the whole code of Bushido was a fiction that the modern Japanese army, which uh, the leaders of the modern Japanese army, which really wanted to wage a, a huge war, used as a kind of motivational factor for Japanese troops. The, the real key here is that they managed to indoctrinate the Japanese troops with one single powerful idea, to surrender was not only a disgrace to your country, but you would dishonor your family at home and all of your ancestors. And to the Japanese, in a Japanese home, it's not just the family that's living there, it's all of the ancestors that are living there with them. And that's a very powerful cultural force, and it had a great deal to do with the way the Japanese soldiers behaved. You also have to look at the Japanese um, uh, training, military training, which was the most brutal in the world. Um, it was They created an army of savage intent. These soldiers knew that they would be beaten. Many died in, in training. So when they got out into the field, they didn't have much humanity left in them. What did the press Japanese feel about MacArthur? Japanese feel about MacArthur? I, I, I'm sorry, I just didn't hear the, the question. What do the present Japanese people think of MacArthur? Um, I, I haven't read any surveys lately, but I do know that the, the Japanese had a tremendous respect for authority. And MacArthur, MacArthur was smart. He knew this. And when he became uh, governor general of Japan, um, in, in effect, he kind of took the emperor's place. But he was very, very careful not to cast himself as the emperor and to leave the emperor in place so that the cultural structure of the, of the country remained intact. Um, and in effect, MacArthur not only democratized Japan, but installed a whole economic system. It's really one of the most interesting things about MacArthur's career is his performance in uh, Tokyo after the war. And I think we could answer this question a little better in about six months, because at the end of May, beginning of June, this book has been translated and will be published in Japan. So we'll get to see how the Japanese react to it. Is there a, a database or a source of the survivors of this march and their captivity? I don't think there's one single database. Of course, you can go on the database of the National Archives and Records Administration and put in certain key words and, and probably get uh, a number of hits. There's also an organization called the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor. Uh, actually, it's their descendants that have taken over the organization now. But um, and Battling Bastards of Bataan is another organization. They've compiled lists. So I think if you really want to get a full roster, you have to piece together this list with that list. Um, uh, and and it, it depends. If you're looking for somebody specific, um, there are ways to do it. Yeah. 
How were you received by the Japanese soldier, the soldiers that you interviewed that's over there? Question. Oh, that, that's a good question. Um, at first, they were very skeptical, um, but um, I think we timed it well. We came to them at the end of their lives, and many of these men had never told their stories before, and they wanted to tell their stories, and it just happened that two Americans came along to listen to them. Um, but uh, uh, we heard some incredible stories from them, but, but, but we were well-received in the end after the skepticism moved away. How, how would you answer? Uh, there were, we interviewed, uh, we pre-interviewed about 50, uh, our associate, Kyoko Anoki, who yeah. is a wonderful translator, newspaper woman from Tokyo. I'd never been to the United States, um, but knew English fluently. Um, she uh, pre-interviewed about 50 to 100 Japanese veterans based on veterans' organizations that were represented the units that were on Bataan. We sent her a list of 300 questions so that we could narrow down the interview pool. And we selected 23 men to interview. Out of 23 men, only one... And by the way, we knew the answers to most of the questions we were asking. Out of 23 men, only one man lied to us consistently from the beginning of the interview to the end. He was a lieutenant in the Japanese Propaganda Corps, and he was still a lieutenant in the Japanese <laughs> Propaganda Corps. <laughs> um, and also, I must confess that I shamelessly exploited my own service background. The very first thing I would say, particularly to the infantrymen that we uh, interviewed, was that, that I had been in combat, um, that I understood some of their travails, um, that we wanted to discuss the battle and everything that happened after it. Um, and it was, it was amazingly uh, easy uh, to gain a rapport with many of these men. Um, and uh, we were invited into their homes. It was a rare treat for Westerners. Um, we, we, we saw the Japanese in a way that few Westerners got to see them. And I think Beth is right. I think that, that this was the time. They, they knew this was the last chance to to tell their stories. And the most interesting anecdote, I think, is the uh, one man that we interviewed was a Japanese scout. Now, these are soldiers who advance ahead of the lines. They sneak into enemy trenches. They kill whoever they sneak, that trench they sneak into. The Japanese were chronically short of ammunition, water, and food on Bataan. So they'd go into the trench, they'd kill whoever was in front of them, then they'd scramble back with as much of the food and ammunition as they could. And we met one of these scouts, I mean, an amazingly, extraordinarily brave man. At the end of the interview, he says to us, I, you know, I've answered all of your questions, and now I have a question to, for you. And we said, absolutely, sure. And he said, can you tell me why you dropped not one, but two atomic bombs on my country? Yeah. Well, we had a really interesting conversation yeah. after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do Japanese history books deal with baton corregatory if they deal with it at all? They don't. They don't. Um, one reason Kyoko Anoki wanted to work with us is that she wanted to learn more, and Kyoko was in her late 40s. She wanted to learn more about what happened, what her country did and what happened during the war. She knew nothing. That's why we have such great interest in this book coming out. The average Japanese has never heard of the Bataan Death March, knows nothing. So let's see what they, um, how they react. I just want to say, uh, last Ben Steele anecdote, he, the coal mine he was at was about 50 miles west of... Uh, Hiroshima, and he was above ground the day they dropped the bomb, and he looked up and he saw the cloud, and they couldn't figure out what it was, the prisoners, because there were colors in the cloud, and the ground shook. So, um, And then they, they went through the, the city as they went to the ships, but he actually saw the bomb drop. In the American portion of the death march, was there any formalized command structure, or was each and every prisoner just for himself? Uh, this is the sad story, I think, of the, particularly the American army. There were t only uh, 10,000 Americans, uh, 10,000 Americans on the death march, 66,000 Filipinos. There were only uh, 22 to 25,000 Americans in all of the Philippine islands. You have to remember, this is the old army. Uh, this is the army that was really good on parade, 
um, that looked really good in their uniforms, that loved um, uh, tours of duty in tropical areas because they only worked till noon and then they took the rest of the day off and then they went to the bar at night. Um, they had a wonderful time. So they, they, their leadership left really quite a bit to be desired. But when you look a little bit deeper and you start to read some of the diaries of the officers, there were here and there some really extraordinary officers. And one of them, for example, was a, a colonel named Beecher, a Marine Corps colonel, who uh, really saved a tremendous number of lives at a prison camp called Cabana Tuan and who was on the worst of the hell ships. Uh, and managed to get 350 men out of 800 alive uh, out of these hell ships that were bombed by American planes um, who didn't know, you know what their cargo was. So here and there, there were, some of the leadership was extraordinary. By and large, though, these were inexperienced officers, and the Army changed radically and completely after the first uh, six months of 1942. Um. I just, I was going to, before we end, uh, there's one story we didn't get to tonight, but there was an extraordinary uh, Navy physician from Tidewater, Virginia, called Commander Thomas Hayes. And Thomas Hayes was in the islands when... um, when, when the war started, and he ended up in Bilibid Prison where Ben Steele was. And Thomas Hayes left behind a diary that is one of the more extraordinary documents we've ever read by a POW. And if any of you ever want to read it, it's up in Washington, D.C. at the uh, BUMED, at the Naval BUMED, and it's very available and open to the public. But I tell you, it's something like you've never read. He did not survive the war, this man. Um, but it's his story of imprisonment and his yearning for Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.